Good morning. Good morning. Not yet. Westridge. Let's try it again. Good morning. <laughs> killing me. Killing me up here. I hadn't even started and you're killing me up here. As Greg mentioned, this is the first of a three-part series, uh, sort of uh, examining our guiding principles here at Westridge, which we sum up as saying helping people uh, encounter, embrace, and embody the radical love of God. So if you're new, this is the perfect time for you. Uh, you'll get to hear what some of those guiding principles are. You'll get to hear each of the three wise men speak on one of them. Uh, if you've been here for a long time, then this is a reminder time, because this is what we're all about. Okay. Um, growing up in Joplin, Missouri, um, had a certain amount of security and sameness for me. Because most people were pretty much, you know, pretty much normal like me. That, that was not the punchline. Uh, <laughs> everyone was Anglo and Protestant, middle to lower middle class. Most people dressed the same way, which is to say, poorly. Listened to country music on an AM station in their pickup truck. Ate the same normal food, which is to say, anything and everything fried and fattening. And enjoyed normal activities, you know, like going to rodeos, riding horses, Friday night football, and growing wheat. It sounds like, in retrospect, I grew up a hundred years ago. And in many ways, America, the middle part of the 20th century, has more in common with the 19th century than it does the 21st century. Little did I know that God was interested in breaking up my monoculture background as a part of my spiritual maturity. And so we moved to the south suburbs of Chicago and lived in a community where, for the first time, I was a minority. And the two graduate schools I later attended were predominantly African-American. And for the first time, I had people from different races and world religions teaching me. Then on to Southern California, where we had a Spanish-speaking congregation, a Korean-speaking congregation, three English-language services in three different cultural expressions, a total of five services, none of which looked or sounded like the other. That meant our Chilean-born pastor would have to learn to bow to the Korean pastor instead of kissing him on the cheek. And the Korean pastor would have to learn that it's okay to wear jeans to church instead of a dark suit and tie, which were his favorites. And everyone would have to get used to the smell of kimchi in the kitchen that lingered for days. And it dawned on me rather late in life that most people in this world don't look like me, speak like me, dress like me, believe like me, and that different doesn't mean abnormal, it just means different, and that's okay. Now, you don't have to look too far or too long to see that Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he said, either we must learn to live together as brothers, or we'll certainly die together as fools. So when it comes to people trying to encounter Jesus, to see Him for the first time, to see 
who he was, what he taught, the gospel truth of Jesus. When it comes to people encountering Jesus, the barrier is not his gospel truth, most often. The barrier, most often, is the culture of the church that stands in front of Jesus. Church culture enshrined and substituted as gospel truth so that people are kept from ever seeing the real Jesus, hearing his gospel truth. Because the gospel of Jesus does not include what the architecture of a church building should look like. The gospel of Jesus doesn't include instructions on the kind of music that should be played or the instruments that should be used or the decibel level of that music in what we call church. The gospel of Jesus doesn't express a preference for hymns sung with an organ or praise choruses played with a guitar. In fact, Jesus doesn't even talk about hymns or praise choruses, nor does he mandate that we have to sing either. The gospel of Jesus doesn't include the kind of clothes you must wear when you go to something called a church service, which he never talked about either. (laughs) Most church wars are centered on cultural preferences, not the gospel of Jesus. And those cultural preferences can become a barrier that keeps people from encountering Jesus. And the subtle message becomes, in order to embrace Jesus, you have to embrace my culture. You have to be, you know, normal like me. One cultural observer says, if Christians were going to create a subculture, why did they have to create one so boring, imitative, and uninspiring? Another survey says that 75% of men aged 18 to 34 would rather kill themselves with a steak knife than watch an episode of Touched by an Angel. (laughs) Now, we've not come to the place as a church in this country where we welcome all people the way God would. 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in America. And it's not just racial segregation, it's cultural segregation. Take a look at any big box boomer church in most suburban metro areas and you'll find people that not only look alike, but people who like the same things. They like the same clothes and cars. They like the same style of music and movies. They like the same sports and politics. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se. At all. But over time, that monocultural sameness can slowly morph from cultural preferences to gospel truth that keeps people from encountering the gospel truth of Jesus. When the two become indistinguishable, and the net result is that someone with different cultural preferences is kept from encountering the gospel truth of Jesus. When someone with different cultural preferences go to a culture-bound church, they can feel about as welcome as Casey Anthony at a Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah. Come back next next service and you'll, you'll get that one. And the depth and complexity of the issue is exacerbated by the fact that America is no longer simply a matter of black and white. 
This culture is pluralistic beyond the average American's understanding. Now, here's the amazing thing out of everything I've said so far. Amazingly, the problem I'm describing to you is not a new one. As contemporary as it may seem, the early church had to confront very similar issues 2,000 years ago. So here's the setup. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they were sent out to help people encounter, embrace, embody the radical love of God. The problem was, as they went out, they began to interact with people who had different cultural backgrounds, different cultural preferences. Most of the people they talked to did not match up culturally or racially with the rest of the early church at that time in the first century. Now, you've got to remember that first century Jews, not unlike some 21st century Americans, had some very tightly held traditions, had some very strong cultural preferences. Trouble was, these new people coming into the faith didn't have the same traditions. They did not always dress the same, eat the same food, follow the same cultural cues. And foremost among those things important to the Jews in the first century church was the rite of circumcision. They had been observing it as a mark of being God's people for 2,000 years. And you don't give up a 2,000 year tradition very easily, and they didn't. And so in the minds of the traditional Jewish member of the church, becoming a Christian, encountering and embracing Jesus meant observing Jewish customs too. And so they began to raise the battle cry, no salvation without circumcision. These people became known as Judaizers, which meant that in order to encounter Jesus, you must observe all the Jewish rituals. And this challenge threatened Paul and Barnabas' entire ministry. They argued that circumcision was cultural. It didn't fit the new wineskin of grace. It wasn't a part of the gospel truth of Jesus. And so for Paul, the question boiled down to culture versus Jesus. And Jesus must rule. And so his rebuttal to the Judaizers was circumcision is culture, not the gospel truth. Well, they were not able to reach unity in Antioch, the church that sent them. So they got kicked upstairs. They decided to go to the mother church, the first church of the first, in Jerusalem, to try to get some sort of decision on this issue. And so they're at the mother church in Jerusalem. This is where the church was born. Paul and Barnabas, they arrive. They report on their ministry to people not like us. And when they finished, as Dr. Luke recounts in the book of Acts, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, you know, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Well, the showdown had begun. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter, rose from his seat to speak. Now, you need to know behind Peter's every word, were the blood, sweat, and tears of his long pilgrimage from racial bigotry. And so he recounted the story of Cornelius' conversation. You can read that in the book of Acts. And then he closed with this powerful conclusion. He said, 
So why are you trying to out-God God? Loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and, now that I'm thinking of it, they crushed us too. Don't we believe that we're saved because the Master Jesus, amazingly and out of sheer generosity, moved to save us just as He did those beyond our nation? So what are we arguing about? There was dead silence. Nobody said a word. And then James, the Lord's brother, the one who did not at first believe Jesus was the Messiah, made this conclusive statement. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's our guiding principle. When people are trying to encounter Jesus, our job is really pretty simple. Don't make it hard for them. Now, the deeper theological truth that was beyond the surface dispute here was the question, how do you receive a right standing before God? Does your cultural superiority do it? Does your racial heritage do it? Can a person justify himself before God on the basis of his or her good deeds? What does this early church conference about this controversial issue teach us as the 21st century church? A couple of guiding principles. The first one's this. The church down here should start to look like the church up there. Now you can read in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9 specifically, and it gives us a glimpse of what the church up there is going to look like. It includes people from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. Take a look around. God loves diversity. Christian unity comes as a result of purpose, not cultural conformity. Colossians chapter 3 says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christian unity is not the same as cultural conformity. The head of the church, the chief shepherd, he welcomes all people into his kingdom. Maybe that means I need to start stretching my comfort zones a little bit if I don't want heaven to be a big shock. It may sound contrived, But if we don't intentionally reach outside our normal circle of normal people like us, we can very easily begin to intertwine our cultural preferences with gospel truth and make the same error the first century church did. Now, there are some lessons that I will never learn if I don't place myself in a position to learn them. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't have preferences of my own. And we could take a step back and look at Westridge and say, well, you've got cultural preferences here in music, in dress, in architecture. And the fact is, we do. But they've been very intentionally thought out to try to connect to the context of the culture in which we live so that people can encounter Jesus on their own terms. They've been thought out to try to make it easy. Now, we don't always connect on that, probably. But that's the motivation behind it. Here's what it does mean. My preferences are not priority when it comes to helping someone encounter 
the radical love of God. Here's what it means. If someone has to change, it's me. So that someone can encounter the radical love of God. I change my preferences. It means graciously allowing for others to celebrate diversity, even if they listen to Lawrence Welk or 50 Cent. Even if they eat mashed potatoes slathered in gravy topped with a fried Twinkie or sushi. Even if they wear a bad sport coat over ill-fitting pants under a bad haircut or designer duds. Even if they think the movie Dumb and Dumber should have won an Oscar (laughs) or they got season tickets to the Lyric Opera. It may not be to my refined tastes, but it's okay. And it's okay for one reason. Because it's okay with Jesus. The Jerusalem Conference also teaches us that Christians are called to break down the walls, not erect new ones. Ephesians chapter 2 says that he tore down the walls that we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. And then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for Normal people like me. No. Fresh start for everybody. I'm constantly amazed at how much time Christians spend trying to build walls that Jesus died to tear down. I'm amazed, quite frankly, at how much time is spent in judgmentalism instead of of acceptance. How much time is spent highlighting our differences instead of celebrating our differences. Why else would Bart Simpson say, I'm going to church camp to learn to be more judgmental? (laughs) The basis of our oneness is not our cultural conformity, but our common need of the cross. And I have to think the ugliest walls... They're the ones that we erect that in any way keep people from encountering Jesus. Jesus calls us to let the walls fall down so that we can see ourselves for who we really are, regardless of our nation of origin, the color of our skin, the language we speak, the food we eat, the money in our bank account, the kind of music we listen to. We've all got the need to admit our helplessness and be willing in humble faith to accept what God wants to freely give to us. Sin is the great equalizer. It's the common denominator. When the walls are down, we can finally see what we all have in common. Here's the gospel truth. We're sought by God, 
were scarred by sin and were saved by grace. That's the gospel truth. I have to think the biggest barrier to people encountering Jesus today are those Christians who are living on judgmental walls as self-appointed border patrol watchers to keep out the people not like us. You know, people who are not normal, like me. When in reality, in the kingdom of God, there are no border patrol watchers because there's no wall. Jesus tore it down. This week, make it easy, not hard, for others to see the God who loves everyone, even strange people like me.